morning. We pause this morning in our series in the book of James in order to specially focus on an important moment in the life of the church, which is the celebration of Holy Week, that is to say Palm Sunday. The title of my sermon this morning is The Triumphal Entry, and the text for this morning's message comes from Matthew's account. All four Gospels record the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and Matthew's account begins in chapter 21 of his Gospel. We'll read that text in a moment, but I'd like to begin by observing that knowing how to count a win is not always as easy as it seems. It's an important skill in sports that seems to me that many referees haven't learned. There are usually rules which define a a win or a loss, a victory or a defeat. But just because the rules are there doesn't mean there aren't any disputes For example, a long foul ball can be ruled fair and thus a home run at the bottom of the ninth in a tie game leading to victory for the home team. Now computers and video can help to a certain degree, but even the ability to slow down the picture doesn't settle all the questions all the time. And when it comes to contests involving human judgment, Say, for example, like, who's going to win the NBA Most Valuable Player Award? Things get tricky. Well, it's true in life as well. It's not always easy to know what constitutes a win. The finish line, so to speak, isn't always clear. Sometimes the goalposts get moved. This is why you often find yourself battling the wrong thing, fighting or striving to win, but only later to discover that, in fact, you've been trying to get someplace that God doesn't really want you to go. This can be upsetting. I was speaking to someone recently who was struggling on some points of Christian teaching, points in which he felt he was right and I, as a pastor, was wrong. Now, just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I can't be wrong. But in this particular matter, I have devoted my entire life, my entire adult life, to studying this particular thing in discussion. I won't tell you how long that is. And so while I might be wrong, I can tell when the person is heading in the wrong direction most of the time. We might not agree on everything, but I can spot it when a person has put his goalpost in the wrong place when they haven't defined a win properly. And I should add, there's no pride in this for me. I find myself regularly dealing with the same thing in other areas. In fact, my own journey of faith started out by thinking that what God expected of me was to be a good person and to regularly attend a church where there was a decent choir. I didn't know any better. And yet God in his wisdom and in his mercy helped me to understand that what I thought was a big win was in fact a big loss. So that's why we have this story in the Bible, the triumphal entry. Jesus in this episode has specifically orchestrated and arranged the details 
of his long-awaited arrival into the city of Jerusalem so that you would know what a win looks like for God. Jesus here fulfills messianic prophecy as he approaches the capital city in Israel. It's at the beginning of the Passover festival and the manner of his approach tells anyone who knows anything that he's not the kind of king that they would have expected. He now openly claims for the first time to be the Messiah. But this claim reveals him to be a savior that is perhaps different than the one that you expected. His kingship and his triumph or victory is probably not the one that you would have planned or orchestrated. So in my message this morning on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, I want you to consider how truly unique Jesus' kingship and his victory really is. I want you to look at how Jesus is defining a win. Where has he placed the goalposts? And in his victory march, in his triumphal entry, I want you to notice what he teaches you about what you should think success looks like in your life. If he truly is the person he's saying he is, we have to allow his definition of life to control our definition of victory. So let's begin then by reading God's holy word and asking for his blessing. This is Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11 the infallible and the inerrant word of God. Let's give our attention to it. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and the ones that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So far the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Fathers, we've just sung, the unfolding of your words gives light and life. And so as we consider how you have defined your kingship and ultimately the triumph, 
which you bring, the victory. I pray that each one of us would have ears to hear and eyes to see. Not only what you have to teach us this morning, but how it applies to our life and where we might truly be changed. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does Jesus define a win? What is the first characteristic of Jesus' triumphal entry that points to his unique messianic rule? The first feature that I want you to notice in our passage is that Jesus' triumphal entry has perfect timing, something I don't often have. Maybe you're better at this than I am, but I'm often speaking up when I should stay quiet, staying quiet when I should speak up, arriving too early, arriving too late. Jesus has perfect timing. He comes to Jerusalem and to his victory march at the perfect time. And we see this in two ways that I think are important. First, it's the best time of year. His, perfect time, his timing is perfect because he arrives in Jerusalem at the perfect time of year. It's the Passover. Now, why is this important? Why does it being Passover make it the perfect time? Well, the Passover was one of three pilgrimages that all Jewish males had to make every year to the city of Jerusalem. But of the three, just as in the church today, people had their favorites. And while they might have missed two of them, they wouldn't miss the Passover. It was the most popular pilgrimage. And therefore, it was the most well-observed or most enthusiastically attended, we might say. For the Passover, attendees came not just from Galilee, which is northern Israel and the distant precincts of the Roman province of Palestine, but they came from all over the ancient world of the Mediterranean. In fact, going back five or six centuries, the Jews had been dispersed and scattered far and wide through the exile and the various attempts to settle and resettle themselves. And so from these far-flung nations, Jews would come to the Passover, sometime traveling weeks on end to arrive at the right time. What this means is, among other things, that the population of Jerusalem, which was normally around 30,000 people, would, would increase by six or seven times. Perhaps as many as 200,000 people would fill the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Well, what's the big deal about Passover? Passover was the divinely appointed moment in the life of the ancient Jews who were enslaved in bondage when Almighty God moved through Egypt and slew every firstborn son. Except those houses where there was blood of a lamb wiped on the doorpost and the doorframe. And the blood of the Lamb was a kind of pre-sacramental sign that the destroying angel had no place in this home. You might think of it in another way. The destroying angel passed over those homes. Or the Spirit of God hovered over those homes with a hand of mercy and protection and power, saving His elect people from the destruction that they would otherwise 
have deserved. So the name Passover, because God passed over in judgment from his people because of the blood of the lamb, is attached to this feast. And it celebrates then two kinds of victories. The victory of God over those who would oppress, harm, and ruin his people to subjugate them. And the Exodus itself is the, is the celebration of their deliverance. So, so Passover is a celebration that God is king and God saves. God saves his people from their troubles. But it's also a celebration of the victory that the people have received that they didn't deserve. Because the only thing that caused that angel to pass over or, or God to hover over those households was the blood of someone else. The blood of, a, of an innocent lamb. So Passover also celebrates a victory which the people received but didn't deserve and a death which they deserved but didn't receive. What a perfect time! He picked the best time of year, didn't he, to show up in the city of Jerusalem, the Passover. It's also, though, the right time for a triumphal entry, not just because it's the perfect time of year, but it's the end of a job. There's a saying that guys on a job site have, whether you drink or not, it's a saying, Miller time. It's 3.30, it's... Time to clock out. Now maybe your Miller time is decaf coffee. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is that you don't rest and take off your work boots and take off your work belt and take off your gloves and sit down and kick your feet back until you finish the job. Sometimes you have to work overtime until the job is done. Well, Jesus came to Jerusalem at the right time because he came to the city when he had finished the job. What do I mean by that? Listen to how Jesus prays shortly after the scene here, which we read about. This prayer of Jesus, it's a famous prayer, comes from John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven. John chapter 17 says, And Jesus says this, Father, the hour has come. I have glorified you on earth. I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Now's the time. I finished the job. He says, I have glorified on you. I have glorified you on earth, rather. And in doing so, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. In other words, Jesus is telling the Father that the time has come. He has finished the job. Because of that, it's time for him to enter the city of Jerusalem, the capital of the nation, the city of David, as the king of kings. No more games. No more playing around. This is a little more clear when you see in the Gospels how other people were always telling Jesus what time it was. And Jesus kept telling them, it's not time. I haven't finished the job yet. 
for instance, his brothers who didn't believe in him, saw what he was doing and, and understood at some level that he had messianic pretensions or claims or ideas. And they said in John chapter 7, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly, insert, as the Messiah. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You can kind of see him sort of elbowing each other. <laughs> this guy, he is, he's crazy. And then John writes this. For not even his brothers believed in him. But Jesus replies in this way in John 7, My time has not yet come. You don't know what time it is. I haven't finished my job yet. The brothers thought they knew the right time for Jesus, but they weren't believers at this point in their lives, were they? No, they were unbelievers, and so they couldn't know what time it is. Because time is something that God controls. And it's only when he says the game is over is it really over. Jesus still had work to do, and until then he wouldn't be deterred or distracted by anyone else's timetable. In a different context, we have a different reaction altogether. The crowds, when they see Jesus having fed the multitudes with just a few loaves and fishes, when the people saw what he had done in John 6, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Our text also mentions prophet in verse 11 of Matthew 20, 21. Perceiving then, John writes, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. Again, people saw what Jesus was doing and instead of sarcastically kind of mocking him as his brothers did they go to the opposite extreme and they're ready to crown him king but they too were wrong galatians 4 paul writes that there is a fullness of time for the incarnation in the fullness of time god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law if there's a a fullness of time or a right time for the incarnation, there is also a right time for the crucifixion, too. You know, if you're baking some bread or a pie, you can't hurry that thing along by turning up the heat. Maybe you can get away with a few degrees adjustment, but much more than that, it's going to burn or dry out. Likewise, once you get onto 295 and rush hour, there's nothing going to speed that up. You have to wait it out. There is a time for Jesus to come to the city and enter as a king. And the triumph of divine time, which is my first point, on this very special Palm Sunday, was not only the right season, but he had finished his job. The second feature of Jesus' victory, if we're looking for a win, where are the goalposts? By entering Jerusalem in this way, Jesus fulfills prophecy. I'm calling this a triumph of the divine word. Now, our text actually spends most of the words in the passage talking about this prophecy. It's really quite remarkable and a little strange. 
There's extremely detailed directions of what the disciples should do and where they should go and what they should say when they get there and what should they say if somebody says something else. And then Matthew inserts specifically why this is so important. I wouldn't have paid any attention to it if Matthew didn't tell me, as he says, this took place. Headline, pay attention. Don't ignore this weird little dialogue about going to somebody's house and asking for something. It's not irrelevant because Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I want to pause here and make a plug for reading the Bible. You're not going to understand these sorts of references in the New Testament if you're not reading the Old Testament. And reading Zechariah is probably not on your top two or three priorities for this year. But maybe it should move up a little bit. And if you're not ready for Zechariah, at least start in the Psalms or Proverbs or Genesis. In order to appreciate our faith, we need to recognize that its roots are in the Old Testament. And these are stories which grow on you over time. It's not just like reading a, a pulp fiction novel, which is fine if you read those things. It, this is slow reading. You're not going to get everything in your first go-around. It's reading that it starts when you're a teenager and, and then it, it picks up steam in your 20s. And particularly for young men and women who aspire to Christian leadership, reading through the whole Bible on a regular basis is important. If you just start reading the Bible when you're 30, then you've missed 10 opportunities to read through the Bible at age 20 and 21 and 22. Because by the time you turn 30, people are already starting to look to you for guidance in the church. The young, the very young, those in high school and, and college, they see you as a 30-year-old and they think, wow, that guy, that gal's really got his act together. There's someone I can go to for wisdom and instruction and guidance. But if you've just started reading the Bible, what are you going to tell them? But if you've been reading the Bible on a regular basis, the whole Scripture by the time you're 30 years old, let's say you've started at age 20, you've read it 10 times. 10 times through the whole of the pasture of God's Word. Each time noticing more and more detail and seeing things which you were too busy or distracted or too, too occupied in your own sin to have noticed the first or second or third or fourth or fifth time. But you see, I'm talking about doing something that perhaps some of you have never even done once. And Jesus here is, and Matthew here, and Jesus want us to see that Zechariah and what he says in chapter 9, verse 9 is important, and verse 10, to the unfolding of the gospel and the kind of victory that we have. There's a whole, there's a whole entry on the menu of God's grace in your life that you have no idea what it means. And so your Christian life is starving by, by the degree to which you are not plugged into God's Word, the whole of God's Word, consistently and faithfully. 
reading the scriptures. So with that encouragement and that admonishment, what is this text saying about a donkey and a daughter of Zion? Well, the daughter of Zion is a figure of speech that refers in a very endearing manner to the chosen people of God as typified in a mountain, Zion, Sion. And so the mountain of Zion, Mount Zion in the Old Testament has symbolic significance. Now, the daughter of Zion is not a a father or a mother, but it's it's a poetic way of describing this mountain where the promises of God are made as having children. It's a way of saying that the daughter of Zion are the children of God's promise, the people of his election, of his choice, of his sovereign love. And what an endearing way for God to describe his people as the daughter of the promise. It's a beautiful thing. And the, the daughter of Zion is, is the collective people, so speaking collectively in the singular. Behold, daughter of Zion, your king is coming to you. He's not here yet. So Zechariah is telling us that there is an anticipated king. Well, why is that? Well, all the kings that are listed and described in the Bible, none of them lived up to the calling and the requirements that God had set forth for his king. So the king isn't here yet. The king is coming. It's a prophecy. It's explaining that the thing that you long for, the thing that you need, which is a true king with a true victory, has not yet arrived. But he's coming. And here, how, here is how you should expect to see him. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a working beast. Calvin noted that this is very important. If it weren't for this prophecy, we wouldn't even have known about this event. Apparently, it's quite important that Jesus' victory entrance is marked by or aligned by as so much in his life a fulfillment of the scriptures. And in this particular case, he is intentional about bringing it about, as we've seen in the beginning of Matthew chapter 21. Now, why is it a, a donkey or a, a colt, the foal, an unridden baby donkey, a brand new animal? Well, the ancient Near Eastern tradition, a king who wished to call his people to war would ride into the city on a horse. On the other hand, a king who wanted to communicate that there was no war, that in fact all was well and there was peace, would ride into the city on a donkey. Now, Jesus was not unacquainted with walking. He walked everywhere. This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus is not walking. Can you believe that? And everyone else is walking. So he's, he's the center of attention. He's intentionally drawing attention to himself. I think we also see here in terms of reading your Bible, if, if you're familiar with the story of David, his kingship starts out good, but it doesn't end up so good. And at one point, because of his sin, one of his own sons rises up to try to steal the kingship from him. That son, do you know his name? Absalom. And because of Absalom's rebellion, there was a 
kind of a civil war. And David himself, the anointed king, was sent out of the, the city, bears his own name, into the wilderness and exiled Messiah. And when the war is finally settled, it's a tragic ending. Jesus returns to the city. I'm sorry, David returns to the city. And what do you think he rides? He's riding a donkey. All is at peace. The anointed king had been exiled and was returning in peace, putting to rest the civil war which had been raging. And what does this mean for us? I believe it means that Jesus comes to end the strife of the city. He comes to declare the peace of his reign and he intends to establish his rule without violence and bloodshed, at least not yours and mine. Rather, he comes to establish peace in a way that no other king would even imagine or fathom. His peace will come as he submits himself to the merciless will of his ruthless enemies. In his submission, he will be defeated, but God will come to him in vindication and salvation. So by this triumphal entry then, Jesus explains what a win looks like. My war means your peace. My curse means your blessing. Your life means my death. The third way we know where the, where the finish line is, how we know what a win looks like, the goalposts, as I've been saying, relates to this. It's the triumph of the divine plan. Not only is this the triumph of the divine time and the triumph of the divine word, but those two things, the time of God and the word of God, come together to show that God's victory comes as his plan comes about. In our text, a little beyond the passage that describes the specific entry into Jerusalem and the shouts of the crowds going before him and behind him, Hosanna, which means Jehovah saves. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. Blessed is the king. Just this amazing choir. The religious leaders were told in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 21, they are not happy. They're so unhappy, in fact, they become angry and they're trying to kill him for the fact that he's suggesting that the divine plan is something different than what they had said and determined was the case. Jesus had to enter Jerusalem as the king. It is the city of David, after all, and he is the promised son of David. But he had to enter in such a way to show that the plan that was in place and was popularly understood was actually invalid altogether. See, Jesus wasn't coming with swords and soldiers and declaring that the Roman occupation was over. In fact, that part of things, they would have no way of imagining how bad it would become in just a few decades. No, he came humble and mounted on a peaceful steed. 
you know, it would have been perhaps more impressive if he'd come with all those soldiers. When Peter pulls his sword, when Jesus is betrayed into the hands of, of, his, of, the, of the ones who would arrest him, Jesus somehow in this moment has the presence of mind. He says, Peter, don't you realize that I could summon 12 legions of angels? I could have come into Jerusalem that way. You saw what I did. That's not how this thing is going down. And while I don't think he was smiling, I can just, it's all right, Peter. It's going to work out. Calvin says, God conferred more honor on his son in the revolting aspect of a beggar than had he been decorated with all the dazzling ornaments of a king. This is a borrowed donkey. They had no saddle, so he sat on cloaks. And the people that were with him were, were low-life, backwater Galileans from northern Israel. These are not sophisticated city folks. And there's children amongst them. This is not the retinue of, a, of, a, of an ascending political party. I mentioned by playing... I mentioned playing by the rules in the beginning and knowing whether or not you win. Sometimes you can't tell right away. You know, you might leave the field thinking you're a loser, but then find out later that in fact you actually won. Think about the times in your life where you wanted something. Maybe even it's to win something and you didn't. That's a terrible feeling. To walk away a loser. No one likes that word. Second place is the first loser. The last person to finish a race, it's embarrassing. But as I look back on those moments in my life, I have learned to thank God for them. I've learned that His victory isn't always what it seems. I've learned to thank God for the ways that he refused to give me what I thought I needed, wanted, prayed for, to give me something even better. The triumph that I was after would have destroyed me. I didn't even know who to date. I had to be told that by my friend. And he was right. The woman I had in mind was not the woman that God had in mind for me. And thank God that he gave me his victory in the matter of my marriage. This is so like the gospel. The gospel of the triumphal entry. The cross which Jesus' entry into the city announces is absolute foolishness to the elite of Jerusalem. That's why verse 11 may be the most important verse of our passage Verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds, these are the Galilean crowds. This is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. These aren't the same crowds, in other words, that are going to cry, crucify him, crucify him in a few days. They're different. These are the the people that had, had begun following him. The crowds in Matthew 20 show us are already quite large. 
It's the people in the city who are going to struggle with what Jesus brings. You know, Paul said that when he became a Christian, it changed his whole way of thinking about his life. What he thought was good was now bad. And what he knew was bad, he was now persuaded, was for his good. What he considered loss, he says in Philippians 3, he now considers gain for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, and him crucified, the fellowship of his sufferings, and the resurrection of the dead. You know, this is not something that you can learn just once. It's why you hear Palm Sunday sermons. In God's wisdom, this is such an important moment in your life and in the life of the church. Pastors return to these texts year after year after year because you haven't figured it out yet. Or you need to be encouraged again that you're on the right path. The conversion to Jesus' goalpost, to his definition of victory, happens over and over and over again in our lives. It's, in fact, it's a daily renewal. Jesus will never enter Jerusalem again bodily in this exact way as described in the Scripture. But you must, in your own way, reenact or relive the triumphal entry in your day-to-day life. Okay, here's my day. What am I going to count as a win today? Stay out of jail. Come home to my wife. Pray for my children. And read my Bible. And I may not get that project turned in, or I may not get that promotion I'm, I'm looking for. And a hundred other things that may make your list, whatever your list is, that's mine, including the jail part. You know, Hosanna to the Son of David, that's a quote from the 118th Psalm. It's the cry of the children and the Galilean pilgrims who had come to love Jesus. It should be our hard cry as well. You should learn it. You can also learn the 24th Psalm. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. In fact, there's a great hymn that goes like this off of the 24th Psalm. Lift up your heads, you mighty gates. Behold, the King of glory waits. The King of kings is drawing near. The Savior of the world is here. A helper just, he comes to thee. His chariot is humility. His kingly crown is holiness. His scepter, pity in distress. Fling wide the portals of your heart. Make it a temple set apart from earthly use to heaven's employ, adorned with prayer and love and joy. Jesus' unusual entry into the city, his triumphal entry, winds up sending his disciples to bring him an ass, not because he was wearied with the journey, but because he was a different kind of king. He wanted us to know the nature of his kingdom. And once this unusual beast of burden has been prepared, he enters the city of Jerusalem, acclaimed as a king by his disciples, but questioned and treated with skepticism by those who would very shortly kill him. In this sense, the title which is in your Bibles for this passage, The Triumphal Entry, is an irony. 
think about what kind of victory or triumph winds up that the king who is acclaimed is hung on a criminal's cross for crimes he didn't commit. The reason that this happens is because this is not a triumph the world can appreciate. And if you are not a believer, you will not understand it either. Because the cross, Paul says, is foolishness according to the wisdom of the world. And it is a stumbling block and a scandal for those who do not have faith. And so I am urging you this morning to repent of your sins to accept Jesus' definition of victory. And do not be ashamed of that bloody cross, but find in His death the victory that you need so desperately. Jesus says, if a man would follow me, let him take up his cross and do so. And so I appeal to you as believers as well that you stop playing around in the Christian sandbox and you take up the cross of Christ and let it define your day. Let it define your life. I am a Christian, which means my life is in the shape of a cross. I walk through the doorway of the cross and live for the cross no matter what else might come to me. James says in chapter 1, verse 21, that having been born again by God's Word, we need to receive with meekness this implanted word. And this is a word, this word of the cross, that you need to receive with meekness this morning. As the hymn I just quoted puts it, fling wide the portals of your heart and make it a temple set apart. You know, Jesus cleanses the temple in the next passage. He removes all the filth, all the vileness, all the wickedness, everything, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, that that dares to set itself up against the knowledge of God. He cleans it out as the prophet, priest, and king of our salvation. And that's what he wants to do in your life. That's what he wants to do in this church. And that's what he wants to do in this nation is to see that people would come to know him and to follow him and to celebrate his victory. Amen. Father in heaven, as we conclude this morning's message, I pray that you will have done your mighty work with your word as you promised to do, to never leave us or forsake us. I pray that you will have spoken directly to your church this morning. And I pray as, as you promise, Lord, how can they hear without a preacher? How blessed are the feet of him who brings good news. I pray that the church will be blessed for having heard the good news this morning and having heard it, believed unto eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. 
Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.